Well, that's cool. Right? Hello, fellow isolators, and welcome to the fifth edition of the Well That's Cool Book Club. I am hosting this episode from Edmonton, Alberta, which is on Treaty 6 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, Nakota Sioux, and Métis peoples. I am honored and thankful to be able to live here and celebrate curiosity on this land. I also want to say a special hello to the live studio audience joining the book club this month. Nice to see some new faces and glad that you're here for our conversation. For our February meeting, we have the first poet to make a special guest appearance at the Well That's Cool book club. Jenna Butler is more than just a poet, however. She is also an essayist, professor, and organic farmer. Quite a mix. Jenna's writing includes the poetry collections Seldom Seen Road, Wells, and Aphelion. A collection of ecological essays called A Profession of Hope, Farming on the Edge of the Grizzly Trail, and the travelogue Magnetic North, Sea Voyage to Svalbard. Reverie, A Year of Bees is her latest work and features essays about beekeeping, climate grief, and trauma recovery. It is out now from Wolsack and Wynn. Jenna Butler, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me, Ben. Now, I wanted to start with the poetry side of your work. How did you get started as a poet? What sort of shaped the type of work that you create? And maybe how would you describe yourself as a poet? Hey, for sure. I started out as a poet, like really, really young. Um, I was uh, one of the writers who I knew I was a writer before I knew the term for it, before I knew kind of the personality, like what we did. It was just kind of who I was. Right. And I was very, very lucky at a young age to grow up in a household. My parents weren't big readers, but they were fans of nursery rhymes and stories and songs. And they passed all that on to me. And so from the time I was a, a small child, I was surrounded by the sounds of words. And I think that's why I went to poetry first. Right? I was really um, drawn to cadence and I was drawn to word choice and my dad comes from England, so maybe that's <laughs> kind of growing up with nursery rhymes, traditional nursery rhymes from England. Maybe that's partly why I went to rhyming poetry first, because those cadences were familiar. And then kind of progressed from there. And as, and as I grew up in the Edmonton literary community, I was very grateful and very lucky to grow up within that, that group. Then I started thinking more about experimental poetry and kind of pushing nudging poetry here and there and seeing what it was capable of and what it could do in terms of form and bringing the body back into poetry instead of just having very cerebral poetry became something I was interested in. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Just to, to give us an understanding of, of bringing the body back into poetry. What, is, what does that mean for a poem? I think sometimes, and, and we've all read poets who... I think sometimes get so fascinated by the conceit or they get so fascinated by the project that sometimes they tend to be too into their own project and they don't realize or they disconnect from the reader. And so the poem hits you somewhere up here, it goes kind of sailing right over. And I find that with my own students, so many of them who are scared of poetry have encountered a poet that they find kind of inaccessible in that way. And so I, I started to become really interested in the way in which the types of poets who are so interested in it, it feels almost like playing a game with the reader. Sometimes the poetry becomes disconnected from the body and you kind of, you read it up here, but you forget there's all of this, 
involved. There's the breath involved. There's the emotions that come out of the breath. And so thinking about conceptual poetry, thinking about contemporary poetry and pushing the bounds of poetry on the page, pushing the bounds of um, poetic projects, you know, how you can do it in different styles, how you can represent space in the body on the page, but also thinking about how you can ground it back in the body. So elements of spoken word, elements of um, performance poetry to kind of remind you that it is coming from here, but it's also coming from here, right? And I find that seems to be more accessible to a wider readership. Yep. It's nothing new. It's kind of just bringing poetry <laughs> back in, right? Where it comes from. <laughs> and, and sort of something that maybe people can experience a little bit more as well as, is that maybe a good way to put it? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that uh, conceptual poetry or um, poetry that's really kind of playing a game with you doesn't have its worth. I absolutely think it does. I think sometimes the best poems are like the puzzle box poems, but also not to forget, not to divest it of the body right and to divest it of you know when you're reading a really interesting poem on the page sometimes it impacts your breath and sometimes by the end of reading that poem aloud you're aware that your body is not just the poem on the page but you are feeling something the poem has made your body and your breath do something it's evoked a particular emotion just from how you have to interpret it on the page it's, it's interesting to me Mm -hmm. Last book club episode, we were talking a little bit about about genre and how genres sometimes have definitions that maybe don't actually fit them or that are umbrella terms or things that maybe are meant to pigeonhole and stereotype. Does that does that also happen in poetry? Is that something where you would describe yourself as a something poet? Um, is that a problem for you? Um, no, I think I I think it can be used to pigeonhole for sure. Um, I have a lot of friends who are spoken word poets who celebrate themselves as spoken word poets who are really well known in a particular community, but when they try and publish as page poets, you know, they, it, there's like a, a hurdle that you have to get across where um, there are a lot of gatekeepers, I find, between communities, I guess, and also sometimes between forms. Um, and I, I think it kind of robs all of us because it doesn't allow people to play. It doesn't allow people to experiment and to feel like just because you start out as a lyric poet, you know, like I, I started out writing rhyming poetry because that's that's the cadence that was instilled in me from my parents. Um, but if I hadn't been allowed to play, I wouldn't have known how to become, you know, a conceptual poet or to play around with the page a little bit more to, to invoke a little bit more of the visual poetics in it. Uh, so yeah, I think anytime we have those really strict boundary lines that we impose, we lose out. Poetry as well, um, sometimes we, we may think of it or we may take it in as one poem at a time, whether it's in a reading or people often talk about their favorite poem. It's sort of a one element, one time thing. Uh, you put out poems in collections as well. And I mean, a lot of poets do. This is sort of the way that poems often get out into the world. So how do you put together a collection of poetry, especially around a theme, especially when people may be taking them in one at a time? Mm. Yeah, good call. Um, I think it depends on the project. You know, I, I think sometimes... Um, Poets. I know, particularly in my earlier books, I was writing a broad spectrum of poet of poems, you know, different subjects, but they had some kind of underlying thread, and I could kind of chunk them into different segments of one overarching book, right? So I think many poets write; they have 
five or six different poems going at a time. And then at the end of the day, once they've got enough for a collection, they'll kind of put them up on the wall or push them around on the floor and figure out what the pattern is, what knits them all together. And then each of those is standalone, but it functions within the larger whole. And then other collections, you have a very precise focus and you're writing around that. And it's sort of like, I was thinking, you, you had mentioned to me earlier on about Magnetic North, my book about the Arctic. And I think when you have a very specific um, subject or, or theme for your book, it's like dropping that stone into the pond. So you have this center point and then you have the ripples outward and that's kind of how you structure the collection. So all of the poems, whether they're closer to or farther from that central focus, kind of rotate around that. And so there's no question of where they fit. It's just a case of how you're gonna organize them. Right. So I think really the, the, the project itself kind of speaks to how you organize that. And I think maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know other poets out there or people who will listen to this later. Um, as you go along and you get more familiar with how, how you write as a poet, you, have, you develop that ear for what the collection warrants, whether it's going to be a really diverse range of pieces and you're going to have to sift through them later and kind of fit them together or whether it's that kind of laser focused yeah. collection. I imagine that's probably more akin to a, a musician putting an album together than maybe a, a novel writer putting together chapters in a book where they might have those more direct connections more often, maybe. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What about for what about for your work, Wells? Because you you had the poems exploring that or piecing together a historical experience. Did that change or was that more similar to the magnetic north example uh it was and it's funny that you bring up wells wells and magnetic north so wells is um a collection of prose poems where i was writing into the gaps left by my grandmother's um she, her progression into senile dementia over a decade and so each of the segments in the book is one of her losses it's the losses of a group of words for the birds in her life as she became really housebound and the the losses for the words for her past and the losses for the people in her life. And you just kind of watch them deleted. So you have the historical facts. And then there's an element of creative nonfiction almost in there because you have certain sort of certain facts like pegs in a board, and then you're missing some of the storyline, right? Because she can't tell you herself. And so you kind of skein over, you spin over those gaps in between. And this is very, very much the same for Magnetic North. And that's a book of prose poetry as well about the Arctic. And so you have historical facts and historical figures, but you can't, unless you have their diaries or their journals or accounts of their expeditions or what have you, you're missing huge chunks of the narrative and particularly chunks of the narrative from the perspective of women. So there's a little bit of that creative nonfiction that kind of sneaks into that prose poetry collection as well, because you're filling in those gaps. So I guess kind of <laughs> these weird hybrid prose poetry slash creative nonfiction. Well, and it, and it sounds like a lot of it depends on the project that you're working on too. Big time, yeah, yeah. big time. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I want to talk about Magnetic North because listeners of the podcast know that I am very interested in Arctic exploration and Arctic stories. Um, and you're right, there there often are no female perspectives or women perspectives um, in the history, in the historical works, because they weren't recorded, or in many of the exploration cases, they weren't directly involved on the ships. And that's often the stories that get told, not the people who were in 
the place to begin with. Um, I guess just to, to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this and what the circumstances around this was? Yeah, you bet. Um, Magnetic North came out of a writer in residence position I held on board an ice class masted tall ship um, up at the Norwegian Arctic Circle for over the summer solstice in 2014. So I was up there for two weeks on board this ship with um, artists and photographers and composers and choreographers and scientists around the world. And we were tasked in this residency with um, kind of documenting climate change and experiencing this space firsthand in a way that before you leave on a trip like that, you kind of intellectualize it. You watch a lot of YouTube videos and National Geographic and you read a lot of articles and then you get there as an artist or a scientist and you see what's happening in terms of the landscape and the glaciers and in your own art form or you, through your science, you try and process that and, and, and bring it back home in a way. So that's kind of where that's that's where Magnetic North started its gestation, I guess. It took a long time after after the trip to actually put out the book. And it's a really slim little book, but it was like, how do you process the Arctic? How do you process climate change that close up? Um, so it took a few years of going back to photos and sound recordings of the cabin glaciers and the melting ice um, and going back to my journals on the ship from that time to write the book were any of the i mean the seeds were obviously there with those recordings and journals and whatnot but were any of the poems ones that came about directly on the trip or were they all from that sort of perspective years later um i started writing the book i would say about five or six months after i got back the first iteration was very very different um, i started writing short form poetry with a lot of gaps and spaces on the page really detached from the left-hand margin. Um, and I, what I was trying to process in my head and on the page was the gaps in the Arctic landscape, right? Because it is very pared down. It's rock, it's snow, it's ice. It's like these really broad horizons. Um, the very, you know, the foliage is very low to the ground over the rocks. So I was trying to process this kind of pared back landscape in a very pared back way in the words. And so the first iteration of the book, it, it was overwhelming because you were trying to process what was happening on the page with the spaces in the text and how it was represented. And you were also trying to process as a reader, the Arctic landscape, if you hadn't seen it before. And so it, it felt like it was just sensory overload. So the book as it is now, like it's now prose poetry and you end up with these little chunks that look like, you know, something kind of accessible. And I actually ended up writing into the poems and expanding them into prose poetry so that I could still use the really tight language, but I had enough expansion in the, in the lines and the sentences that it wasn't overwhelming in terms of t grasping the form of the poem on the page, as well as the landscape. Hmm. That makes any sense. Um, you describe it as, as prose poetry, uh, but in the, in the biography introduction section, I called it a travelogue and it's, it's not a travelogue in the sense of a visitor book that you might take to understand where to go for your next coffee or something, but it's also not, you know, different forms of poetry, like you said, of those very putting it on the page the way that you see it kind of thing. So can you explain a little bit about, um, about how that prose poetry works as poetry and travelogue? Mm. I had kept journals, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. I had kept journals on board the ship 
And that was where the minutiae of the everyday life on board the ship, like what it was like to be seasick for two weeks straight, what it was like to go through some of these crazy storms out in the open ocean under sail and the deck is underwater. You're just like, what? And so I was writing these journals and I was writing them in the form of letters back home to my husband. And so all the little tiny bits and pieces of life on the ship are in those journals. And then what I did is I went back, I looked at those and I looked at the photos and everything. And then the prose poetry allowed me to take some of the beauty of the photos and the beauty of the sounds of the melting ice and the birds and whatnot and mine the journals for the bits that I wanted and then leave out some of the things that I didn't want. You know, we had a cook who created some really odd and weird meals for two weeks, um, but some things kind of got left out of, of the uh, eventual prose poems. So that was where I could pick and choose and I could um, introduce some of the specific beauty of the landscape that I wanted to capture. So I think it might've been lost in a traditional travel log sense because there was just so much. It literally was two weeks of sensory overload. It was 24 hour daylight too, right? We were there over the summer solstice. So 24 hour daylight, we were um, almost 30 people with the artists and scientists and the ship's crew, 30 people in 600 to 800 square feet on board the ship. And you could not get off because you're in the middle of the ocean, right? <laughs> you can't get off anywhere. So there was this overload of being in, in company for that long, for 24 hours a day. We shared births, we shared space. So I think too much of that from, from the daily journals would have overwhelmed the book, would have been too much. And that's because you were also trying to tell the story of climate change and the Arctic story, not just your own personal story. How did you, how did you find that balance so that it wasn't one too much or the other? was kind of a constant navigation. I think it was partly to do with realizing that there are so many centuries of people moving in and out of that space, yeah. you know, and, and moving in and out of that landscape and, and shifting roles in that landscape from the whalers um, to modern day tourism, to the mining, to all of this scientific exploration, scientific vessels. And so understanding that your own story is just like a tiny little fraction of that landscape, which is some, it's a thread that I brought back home too when I started to pull the collection back across the world, back to Alberta, is realizing that no matter where you are and no matter how close you feel to a particular piece of land, your story is that much in, in the scale of the history of that place. It, it is quite the change between Svalbard and Northern Alberta. Can you, can you talk about other than just, you know, there being no trees in Svalbard, how, how did that experience of having something so different, how did that change your creative process? Um, obviously, you, you sort of put the book together later when you're back in Alberta, but was there a change that either you could see in that work coming together or even in the years since then that you can trace back to that trip to Svalbard? Mm -hmm. One, definitely a stronger sense of how um, if you're trying to capture or render a landscape through poetry, how the form of the poetry can be so important. Like I said, how the earlier version of that book was so just visually overwhelming because the subject matter itself was also sent in terms of the senses, it was overwhelming. So thinking more closely about the form and the content and how they really needed to be tied tightly together. I'd been thinking about that before, but it, it, with that book, it kind of came home and also having, I guess, intellectualized climate change and being out on the farm and realizing that climate change was happening and seeing it close, close to home and then going, 
halfway across the world and seeing it happen on that kind of massive scale and then coming back and processing it again on a very kind of microcosmic scale on the farm. Um, that's been something I carry with me. Like it, climate change is happening. It's very real. Um, and nothing that you do to read about it or, you know, talk about it or anything like that, or you know, however many David Suzuki videos you watch, nothing compares to when you see it, where you live. And also you see some of those parallel ties halfway across the world, like listening to the glaciers calve 24 hours a day through the Arctic summer, through the 24 hour nights, the bright nights, um, just totally punched a hole in me. There's no way of describing it. Even all these years later, I can feel it very viscerally. Hmm. Was that feeling something that you wanted to get across in the poems that maybe poems, prose poems or otherwise are, are a better medium for that, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if I had been telling it in sense, uh, kind of a more extended narrative, or I had if I had tried to move into short fiction, um, I think I probably wouldn't have been able to capture it as well. And I'm just speaking for my for myself. I felt like poetry, and particularly prose poetry, allowed me to still kind of punch the same hole in my reader's heart that I felt myself. And that's something that poetry allows you to do. It's kind of like an air bubble in the veins, right? It just gets right in there and it causes all sorts of impacts. Like it can cause immense, um, it can hit you really, really hard and really viscerally in a very few short lines. And so that's why I chose that form. Yeah, it's interesting how it comes together that way and gets that across maybe in a different way than other forms might for sure. Um, I would love to talk about the Arctic all the time, but uh, we also have lots of other works to cover in this interview. And and you have published works about farming um, to bring it back a little bit closer to home and ecological themed essays and about farming and beekeeping. Um, beekeeping within your farming practice but you know sort of through the lens of beekeeping especially that's your latest work and and we were talking that it'd be really good to hear a little piece of that so would you want to do a, a short reading from reverie right now mm -hmm. sure absolutely i will thanks i'm going to read a little piece just a few minutes here towards the end of the book um and this comes from this is not a practice that's unique to us at the farm by any means it's the practice of telling it to the bees or telling the bees, you and also hear it mentioned as, and this is an old beekeeper's practice that if something in your life changes, um, someone is in your life, out of your life, some kind, there's some kind of major aftershock in your life, you tell the bees. Because one of the things you learn as a beekeeper is that the bees read your energy. They're sort of like if you've kept horses or you have dogs, right? If you have a really bad day, the animals in your life will pick up on your energy and the bees are no different. There's just 50,000 of them in each hive. So, so if you come into the space of the bees, um, when something has really changed and, and shaken your world, it's a good idea to tell the bees. Tell it to the bees. It's an old beekeeper's adage that I've heard from numerous friends over the years. When someone in the house dies, you must go out into the bee yard and explain why your loved one won't be coming around anymore. When things in your life shift seismically in this way, you must always tell the bees. Who do you tell then when the bees themselves are dying? In the summer of 2016, we nearly lost our farm for the second time in five years. 
First in 2012 and again in 2016, the rains caught up with a part of the boreal that we call home. The first flood summer saw our market garden underwater through to the start of August. The beds we'd spent six years amending and developing disappeared under a peaty cloud of flood water. The perennial bed sank and the flowering orchard by the end of the summer had rotted to pieces. Even the lilac bush that we planted together as we renewed our wedding vows that summer, surrounded by family and friends, drowned. We rebuilt the next year. My husband Thomas tilled up good black soil from elsewhere on the farm and I hauled yard after yard of it in the Vermont cart to spread across the beds and raise them above the waterline. We re-sowed the small lawn and planted a palmful of hopeful lily bulbs. By the end of the summer of 2013, our market garden was beginning to look like home again. We had a few fortunate years after that, still with high water tables, but nothing unbearable. The mosquito populations were worse, but the bats flourished in response. The pathways between the beds were often squidgy underfoot through July, but we had a thriving chorus of frogs. And then in the spring of 2016, our county flooded again. This time the flood water came right up to the edges of the gravel pad that surrounded our tiny cabin. The water lingered in the underbrush and the beloved market garden we had tended for a decade finally disappeared for good, swallowed up by a stagnant pond full of bulrushes. That was the spring that climate change really came home to us on the farm. Day after day, we waited helplessly for the water to recede as it had done before, but with such saturated ground, there was nowhere for the moisture to go. Even today, our old market garden site remains underwater. It's true till this day, it's still underwater. We slapped at the clouds of mosquitoes and watched as the Canadian toads web ropes of spawn through what had once been the grass of the lawn. One morning, we woke in a startled rush in our cabin surrounded by water, certain that we could smell smoke. That was the day that the beast roared towards Fort McMurray. The vast forest fire would scorch the city and chase thousands down the highway to the south, fleeing for their lives in a convoy of tail lights. It was a surreal summer of flooding and of smoke, the days alternately choked by a thick amber haze or a black veil of mosquitoes. And as the disastrous months wore on in their trademark understated way, the bees started quietly entering the endangered species list. Seven species of yellow-faced bees native to the Hawaiian Islands appeared on the endangered species list in 2016, the first bees so noted. Perhaps it was because they were indigenous to a place so far away from the mainland United States, or perhaps it was because they look more like wasps than they did the honeybee darlings so loved by the media, but their entry to the list was met with relatively little fanfare. It was only six months later that the news truly made waves, the beast forest fire having been safely extinguished, our farm still underwater. The first bumblebee had been added to the endangered species list. If you wanna hit people where it hurts, hit us in the part of our heart that holds a lingering need for the impossible. In this case, contemplate the unlikely flight of the rusty patched bumblebee. Then tell us that this creature is not just threatened, it's literally almost gone. People wrote letters of protest to politicians to argue for increased monitoring and environmental protection. A short documentary film appeared about the bee's plight. With the catastrophic decline of this compelling creature, we suddenly sat up and paid attention. But the trouble with our attention is that it's a fickle thing. It's prone to change focus when something disappears from the media or when an animal proves to be not quite interesting enough for a long enough spell. And so for a while, we went on being fascinated and bothered by the plight of the rusty patch bumblebee, 
And then we just resumed voting to pave paradise and spray the cracks with a, he a healthy dose of weed killer. In the space of a year, 2016 to 2017, seven bees entered the endangered species list. In the space of a year, the boreal forest burned on a scale large enough to evict an entire city. In the space of a year, we lost our farm again. You can rebuild a whole city or move a farm more easily than you can resurrect one tiny species on the edge of collapse. The residents of Fort McMurray bravely rebuilt after the fire that took their homes, though the boreal forest all around them remains tinder dry to this day, spurring new fires with every summer lightning storm. We moved our entire farm half a mile away to the old hayfield and set up our garden again from scratch on higher ground though the water chased us and the groundwater levels continue to be the highest we've seen in 16 years on the farm. And the rusty patch bumblebee continued to decline, its population present in only about 0.1% of its total overall range. In 2018, climate grief became a recognized term increasingly used to describe the loss of hope and the feelings of helplessness experienced by many in connection with human created climate change. I experienced a prolonged period of this too before I learned the term for it, a period that lasted almost three years. If I'm honest, it's still ongoing. At the heart of my despair was the same sentiment that underpinned American conservationist Aldo Leopold's words, I am glad I shall never be young without wild country to be young in. My generation will likely be the last one to have a chance at dying before deaths begin to be more directly correlated to climate change than to old age or infirmity. A world reconfigured by global warming is the one my own daughters would have inherited had they lived. It is the world my students will inherit, little nephew. It is not a world I can forgive myself for leaving to them. It's this thought that's galvanized me to begin wading through my climate grief. Too often grief and guilt on that scale leads to a sort of stunned inaction. And the longer you and I sit idle, the more likely it is that our loved ones will inherit a planet that looks rather more like a punishment than a gift. I can't help but think of Senator Murray Sinclair's words to a gathered audience of several hundred students, faculty, and community members at Red Deer College back in 2016. He said that guilt stops us from moving forward, from changing for the better. Shame, though, that's a different story. Shame makes us actively want to repair what we've done wrong, to make things right. I can't stop the forest fires of the boreal, but I can plant diverse stands of native trees here on the farm, including the large clumps of aspens that wildlife scientists and backwood firefighters know as asbestos forests for their ability to act as a living when fire break. I can't stop the summer deluges that have become the new norm in our county, but I can study how to enrich the soil with cover crops and no-till methods to improve its permeability to rain. And I can't stop the rusty patch bumblebee from disappearing from the rest of its range, but I can observe, catalog, and plant for the wild bees here on the farm with a much more intentional way. I can sit with my grief and I can act on my shame in the most mindful ways in which I'm able. There are no perfect solutions. Even to hint at such comes across as being glib. But I will write letters like never before to my members of parliament, to my premier, to a political party currently in power in my province that I feel little affinity for and that has shown itself to have no respect for the land under its care. 
I will commit to informing myself as much as possible about what's happening in the world around me when it comes to the actions of large corporations and high polluting industries, because I fervently believe that individuals do need to make mindful personal changes, but big industry must be called to account for its impact on this world. And I will tell the bees, not just of my fears and of the great losses being sustained around the globe, but of my deep and abiding ache for the planet that the coming generations will inherit. I'll tell the bees that my grief, at the end of the day, looks an awful lot like love. Thank you for that very, very evocative uh, section of the of the book. You talked about magnetic north as punching a hole in sort of your your feelings and and using poetry to do the same but this is obviously very different this is non-fiction this is a, um, a a response to something in prose even though it is written quite poetically and quite beautifully why did you choose this format when you might think that the same impact was being sought from the prose poems in magnetic north uh, and how has that how has that process changed for you between the two different forms? Mm -hmm. You ask really good questions. <laughs> You're making me think about <laughs> this work in in a way I might not have otherwise done for sure. Um, I think with with the Reverie, your bees, and the previous book, uh, Profession of Hope, which is also essays about the farm, I wanted a different tone. I wanted the sense of here you are on the other side of this butcher block table here at my farm and we're having a conversation over a cup of coffee and the garden is out there and the boreal forest is out there and maybe we're watching the birds or whatever and we're talking and I think I can get that kind of conversational sense out of the short essays out of the prose that I think I didn't want the reader to have to make all these intuitive leaps with the poems I wanted them just to feel like Let's just sit down. Climate change is hard enough, right? It tears the heart out of all of us. We're, none of us are immune. It's hard enough. Let's just sit down and talk about it person to person. And that's the tone I wanted to evoke. So I think that's why that form kind of, kind of emerged. You know, I, I didn't have any desire at all to write Reverie as a book of poems. Yeah. Not at all. But as I said, it's still somewhat poetic at least in the way that you write and maybe maybe that's something you can't help as as a good writer but um but you know even lines of a convoy of taillights you know the the way that you describe things i think still evokes a certain imagery um was that was that something that you did on on purpose as it were or, or was was that imagery really important to include even though it might seem poetic in that conversational tone I'm a poet. I don't think you can shake it out of me. Okay. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's in there. But um, I think every whatever form I'm writing in, I'm very interested in the shortest, like the, the jump cut to the senses. So the most evocative words in the smallest space. And sometimes that, yeah, that is, it is poetic or the sounds of things. I'm very, very attuned to the sounds of things. I mean, aside from being a poet, I'm also synesthetic. So I'm very, very focused on sounds because I can't filter sounds very well everything is is overwhelming all the time um so I, I think that works its way into the lyricism of of the prose as well mm -hmm. for sure you're bringing the body into the prose just as much as you bring the body into the poems yeah really. and i yeah. think also with things like climate change like you have to bring the body back into this because 
if it doesn't hit us right in the gut, we're not going to make the necessary changes soon enough. And we're already, you know, we need to backpedal. We kind of tipped over over that line, right? So as much as we're talking about climate grief and, and climate change and the effects of that, we do have a romantic view of small scale farming, of organic farming, one that um, you've already hinted at being quite often associated with hope, with changing practices that bring people back to the land or get people to understand their food more. You know, we see documentaries about it every other day on Netflix. Uh, but both of your collections, including the one titled A Profession of Hope, deal with those very harsh realities. Uh, Reverie, the part that you read and also the opening of it, deal with moving your farm because the land is not um, suitable where your where your actual farm is on your land anymore. Uh, how uh, do, you, do you still see hope in farming itself and in the views of farming? Uh, or has that changed over the last few years as more and more of those climate disasters strike your region and everyone's region? Uh, and as we even deal with that through COVID? Oh, boy. <laughs> I think when it comes to hope, I think we're beyond the point at which we can just hope can be abstract, hope can remain this kind of beautiful bubble, right? I think we have to put hope into action. And I think that's one way. And this is just speaking for myself, for my own journey through climate grief, like that's the, the one way that I've been able to try and take tiny steps forward as a grower, as a farmer, when you look at all this and you think, gosh, we've moved our farm um, <laughs> for the other side of the property around us, farms are going up for sale because you cannot move a giant cattle operation. The only reason we could move to a different location on the property is because we are small scale. Right. So we were lucky to be able to move. So you think about hope and, and as a grower and as somebody on the land, as a as person in the world, if it stays abstract, it's very easy just to feel like you have no, um, no agency. Right. I think it's when you make those small movements and small and, and you enact your hope in small, meaningful ways, big ways if you can, but small, meaningful ways for the rest of us. Um, that gives you that, that tiny little sense that you're still making a difference because like when, you know, when Fort Mac wildfires roaring down the highway at you, it's very hard to be like, oh, I'm all hopeful. You're just kind of living in the moment and you're trying to get through it and trying to see your way around it, especially, you know, a lot of the people that I've talked to that fled that the way you find your hope afterwards is making those meaningful changes. And I think in terms of agriculture and in terms of sustainable growing, I think, and also the pandemic, I'm going to wind all those things together there. This is the chance. This is the chance we have to radically revision our ways of working with the land, working with one another as growers, working with our communities in terms of creating sustainable food economies. Can you hear me getting up on my soapbox, like climbing up there? But this is something I'm really passionate about because I don't think we listen well enough to the land, to one another and to the people the, the indigenous people across Canada who have been um, so innately tied as seed savers, as stewards, as uh, you know, knowledge keepers of the land. And I think about uh, movements like land back, like um, supporting traditional knowledges of place. And I think a lot of these knowledges have been disrespected or not heard. And now this is the time with these radical revisionings of our food economies this is the time to pay attention. Maybe we weren't doing it before, 
we need to listen and we need to listen to one another. And this is where also agriculture diversity, which is another big issue. We're gonna come through COVID. It won't be the last pandemic, right? So what can we do to support one another and to support our actions with the planet so that we have better resiliency going forward? So I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope. I think there are a lot of people listening really, really hard right now. And it sounds like the agency that you saw available to you that you could take, you are taking. Is there a particular element of that agency that you would recommend to people that don't have organic farms or organic farms that they can move to other sides of their land? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it the sense of agency is whether you live in the city, whether you're on a small farm, a large farm, whatever, you have a balcony garden, whatever it is. Um, think about the food economies that you want to support and the ones that are resilient and the ones that support your community where you live. So, you know, if we get through this pandemic, which we will, and maybe there's something else down the road, when when borders close down, right, what food economies are you able to support during the good times so that when you particularly need them during the hard times, they're there for you? And not only that, how can we all support our actions with the planet, right? Our actions with land. How can we find ways of respecting land, paying attention to land and the people that steward land that perhaps we haven't in the past? So if there are ways of looking after the land that are, have historically proven that they're not keeping up with climate change, right? Um, the land is in countries around the world is eight, 10, 12 harvests away from being exhausted like how can we bring the fertility back to the land so listening to the land listening to our communities creating those local food economies um, and that's something we can all do right we support our farmers markets we support our local growers we don't have to have a farm absolutely don't have to there are ways of connecting with local food economies for everybody mm -hmm. You've been writing and farming and writing about farming for a number of years now. How do you see that relationship, uh, whether it's writing about farming or even just the writing and the farming separately, how do you see that relationship developing as you continue on in the years ahead? It's really easy out here to just disappear into the land. I've been finding that with this pandemic year. Um, it's different here than when I'm in the city. Here, the the big issue is isolation because as growers, suddenly we can't connect through things like farmer's markets. Suddenly we can't connect to our customers in the same ways um, and our local communities. So the big issue is isolation. And it is very easy just to disappear into this space. The fact that you have to still produce your own food, the fact that you still have to produce for your community, but you are very isolated. Um, and what I'm finding more and more is this impulse against my natural inclination to just focus on what I can produce for the community to also write about it, to write about the stories that I'm hearing and that I'm perceiving and particularly coming out of COVID on the other side of that, what practices can we learn from, from each other and from communities in agriculture that have been historically um, squashed really, that have been historically silenced? Uh, how can we learn from those communities and their very specific expertise so writing is a powerful way of doing that. And I feel like I'm in the position where I live here. I look out the window, I'm seeing 
you know, the, the sustainability, the practices that we're learning, what we're putting into play here, I'm seeing that, I'm reflecting on it all the time. If I don't do the work of writing about it and engage with my community, and I have a voice as a writer, then more fool me. Like I'm not doing my job. So it's becoming more, more important to write about it too, as mm. well as just growing the food. <laughs> and keeping the not, not just, I don't mean to downplay what I do at all. It's, it's a huge thing. And save, saving the bees one species at a time too. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, there's a lot of work there, brother. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I want to end my conversation with you with a recommendation of maybe a book or two or a writer or two that you might recommend to us. But before I do that, I wanted to open it up to the floor, to our virtual studio floor, to see if anybody has any questions. So if you do, I open it up for questions now. I'm really, really struck by, oh, Jenna, thanks. It's wonderful and band too, but I'm struck by that last point about writing a social responsibility. I there, There's always that tension about when you mention business and some business is so committed and so good and takes such enormous leaps. We talk in business a lot about corporate social responsibility, CSR, but I've never heard a writer talk about writing a social environment responsibility in quite the way that you've punched it out tonight, Jenna. It's really good. It's really, really good. Thank you. I because you, you're, you're moving that fine line between art and activism and word and body nuance and explosion. Okay, thank you. I think maybe, Jane, if I can even just speak, speak into that a little bit, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I think part of it also comes from being a writer, a, a writer of color, a woman of color in agriculture, and knowing that having a voice as a writer and as a grower, uh, and, and as a grower of color, that's such a small voice right now. There's so many growers of color and seed keepers and traditional knowledge holders um, who don't have that voice. And I feel like in some ways with my writing, I'm constantly just kind of putting my foot in the door. I'm kind of just like <laughs> holding the door open. I think we all have to for each other because there, there's so much knowledge behind us and it doesn't always, um, it doesn't always make its way into agriculture. And so there's very much a, a personal awareness of that happening is, and then also, you know, just, just living on the land and seeing what's happening and feeling like, oh, got to talk about it. We have to talk about it as individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I heard uh, something on CBC this week that um, it comes home quite a bit from what you've been talking about. Um, and I won't have any of the details, but then an, an agriculture activist, I think, from the States who has been writing since the 70s. And he was saying that in terms of agriculture and food production at sort of the industrial scale and, and the global scale, it comes, it has um, um, contracted to, I forget how many companies he said, maybe 20 major producers who are creating the food that we eat and that we buy in our stores. And he, he said it, and it gets to be a bit more detailed in terms of 300 board members who are making all those decisions about the quality of that food and the chemicals and 
everything that goes into it. And in fact, then it whittles down to about 20 people who own those companies and who have all the benefit and the benefit being uh, the production that, that um, gives the shareholders what they're wanting, which is profit. And I found that kind of um, taking it from the big picture, the farm, to this, you know, 20 people who are making the decisions and receiving the benefit of all of this. And it fits kind of into what you're talking about is just um, uh, learning. And um, I'm not a farmer, never have been. I, I can't even do a balcony garden, I don't think. So it's, um, you know, just a different level of skill. But it's, um, it's interesting to have time to think about it and to focus and to learn. And I think that's the value that you're talking about of uh, being a writer, um, a socially responsible action of writing is to educate and um and whether you do that with facts and figures like this fellow on the on the radio program or whether you do it through um a different style of writing a different evocation of um of the topic uh i think that contrast for me is quite interesting because uh, i think it is very different but equally as effective for me because I'm a facts and figures type of person, but very much appreciate your comments and in your reading. So thank you. Thank you. Jenna, that was like, like your energy, I can just like feel it through the computer. Like, and I know that's, that's something that we're trying to always in this very artificial world, um, living virtually all, all the time. So that was it was, it's so nice to, to listen to you. And I'm, I'm wondering about, um, cause I work in the, in the field of, of museums and, and heritage. And one of the, I, I don't want to say a phenomenon cause that makes it maybe have more gravitas than I want it to. But in terms of people connecting with whether it be heritage skills or like, you know, something as simple as bread making and that concept about because the world is so big and scary and misunderstood, especially in this current um, environment. Um, are, are you seeing that within, within your community and are people connecting in more significant ways and in different ways and in more sustainable ways? And, and how are you seeing this very violent shift um, that we've had to make within the, the world over the past year, which is bananas to think that it, it'll be a year in March. Um, and, and how has that interacted with, with your, with, with, yeah, with the people that, that are around you? Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good question. And it's been so profound, right? Like you think about the start of the pandemic and what did we do? We like raided the stores for flour and baking. You couldn't find baking soda for <laughs> baking powder for ages um because we want everyone wanted to bake bread and at the same time you're sitting there going like are is bread going to get us through the pandemic maybe not but it gives us a really it, it's really salient it gives you something now like you can you can deal with your hunger in a very basic way right now and it's been so interesting watching so many people and, and doing this ourselves as well um relearning skills that have been lost or that we've been told that nobody needs that anymore. And suddenly you become aware of how much of your knowledge, how much of your skill set is, it's, it, it's really intangible, right? Like you, you know how to program an iPhone or you know how to do this or that or the other, but can you feed yourself? Not necessarily, you know, can you make your own light? Not necessarily. So like learning how to um, do, do some of these basic skills. Like how many friends have learned how to knit over the pandemic? There's something very, 
yeah, right. There's something really comforting um, about again that that sense that I can't I can't combat this giant thing with my bread, but I I can do this one tiny thing that gives me a tiny sense of agency in this small way. It's sort of like dealing with climate change, right? Like your your backyard garden is not going to stop climate change, but it's going to cut down on your food miles. So I yeah, that's such that's such a good point, Natalie. That I think yeah, I think there really is something and. It's something that I, a phenomenon that I hope carries past the pandemic, like when life has the possibility of picking up speed again, that we won't discount traditional skills from all different cultures, things that have been set aside or actively discounted and that we've been told don't have value, but really do that. Like they got us through this in these very particular ways. They gave us a sense of agency when we were stuck at home, feeling totally overwhelmed. Um, and for many people, the number of people I've seen, especially through social media, starting up home-based businesses, selling their baking, selling their knitting, selling their homemade products has been fascinating. Like these little micro businesses selling their seeds that they've kept from their garden this summer. You think like, I want to see that because people are connecting to one another. They're connecting to their immediate communities. They're connecting to the places they live in such a profound way that they maybe they hadn't done before. I'm sorry if I missed this at the beginning, but um, you said that you teach and I wondered what you teach and how does your writing and um, uh, and your farming maybe, but your writing more influence your teaching. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I teach creative writing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and also in my environmental humanities. Can you can you explain what is environmental humanities? Oh, environmental humanities, it's, it's um, stories and, and poetry and literature that de deals particularly with the land and and cross-cultural experiences of land <laughs> yeah, yeah it's all tied together like the creative writing and the teaching and the farming it's all it dovetails together yeah thank you very much everybody for your questions and comments and and jenna before we sign off can you please recommend a book or two or maybe a writer or poet or two that that people may want to go check out um, if you haven't had a chance to read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, I absolutely, I recommend that book to everybody. It's Indigenous and Scientific Teachings of Plants. Uh, it, and and um, Robin Wall Kimmerer braids together the, uh, the scientific uses for a number of different plants across the United States and, and alludes to around the world and also Indigenous traditional teachings with the plants and brings in Indigenous histories of the different plants and it's a it's a wonderful teaching book it's also very democratic about um, asking people to become more aware of the various histories and the various uses of the plants and the the lands around them and the other one that i'm reading right now actually is called wilding it's by isabella tree now for the life of me i can't remember the subtitle something something of about a british farm can't remember um but it's uh, a story of, of but this author has kind of documented this process of her failing family farm in England and how they took it. She and her husband took it out of, uh, I think it was a cattle operation and, and rewilded the land and actually encouraged the, the indigenous population of, of, of plants. And so bringing back the songbirds and bringing back the butterflies and, and through kind of um, more environmentally aware practices that translated into their farming, they actually made a, um, sustainable farm and a resilient farm out of one that was huge. It was massive. It was a large scale farm, but it was going bankrupt. So 
So wilding and braiding sweetgrass would recommend both. Thank you so much, Jenna. This was a really interesting and insightful conversation. Um, and I think on behalf of everybody else, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for your time, everybody, today. Thanks again to Jenna Butler for bringing such passion and interesting experiences to the book club this month. I loved hearing about those direct, personal experiences dealing with and taking action against climate change, as well as getting to nerd out on poetic Svalbard adventures. I know a number of the club's members this month went right out and bought copies of Jenna's work, and if you want to learn more, you can find them at jennabutler.com. For me, I'm halfway through Once Removed by Andrew Unger, and a little bit more on that later, and have started Spitfire by John Nichol. This is a history book about Britain's greatest warplane that jumps through the story of the spit with little vignettes and excerpts about the people who worked on and flew the great airplane. I'm not sure I can define the style of popular history. It really does seem like Nickel put all the little bits he could find in an archive together independently, rather than using them to put a narrative together like you might expect. It's not a bad effect, and nice to be able to read in short chunks. But what are you reading these days? You can send me a recommendation on Facebook at wellthatscoolpod, or on Twitter at well underscore that's cool, or you can send me an email at wellthatscoolpod at gmail.com. As for this podcast, it is amazing to think I put out the first episode 11 months ago, back at the end of March 2020. This show was going to be my little experiment in podcasting for fun, finding cool people doing cool things and sharing their stories with cool people like you. When I started, I really didn't know where this COVID thing would go, how bad it would affect me personally or the people around me, and how our lives would be shaped by it in the weeks, months, or worst case, years to come. Well, we're almost a full year in now, and here in Alberta, things have been, well, not amazing, but not the worst in the world. I'm very lucky personally not to have experienced medical issues, but I'm definitely feeling the impacts of the isolation and lack of socializing that came with everything else. The way this podcast evolved into a book club this fall really helped connect with friends and keep that curiosity flowing through the dark winter weeks. But what next? Well, future plans and interests and hobbies have fluctuated just about as much as the temperature this week or our moods this year. With a year fast approaching since the first Well That's Cool episode was published, I'm going to wrap up season one next month. I'm really excited to have one last author interview to share with you. I'll be talking with Andrew Unger about his Mennonite satire at the Daily Bonnet and his new novel, Once Removed. I'm loving it so far and can't wait to ask him all about it. Watch for that season finale episode in early March. I'll be taking the break to get back to my half-finished model airplane kit, dusting off my typewriter, catching up on work, obviously, and actually doing some of that reading I keep promising myself. After a breather, I'll also be looking at some new ideas, either for a season two here on Well That's Cool, or a new show experiment, so watch this space for more. We are a year in and can all use a break, but I will miss putting together these book club meetings and episodes for you, the listener. If you want to take up the torch and host your own book club, don't forget to send me an invite. Thanks as always to Ron Yamauchi for the theme tune, and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the Cool Podcast logo. Check out her work at annatherdesign.com. Other music heard during this episode and all the other cool podcast stuff is done by me, Ben Fast. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, stay well and happy isolation reading. Thank you.